Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Mark Blessing, who's the Chief Executive and Co-Founder at Pocket Living, and Nick Cuff, who is the Chief Commercial Officer. Nick Cuff, Mark Blessing, thank you very much for both coming in. It's great to have a, a, a double header. Uh, I don't, what, what are those? The, the, the twin double 99 ice creams that you get as a kid. What, what's the name for those, Mark? Come on. I no Question idea. one. I, I, I wasn't in this country when those were invented. You weren't? No, I wasn't. I'm not, I'm not actually British. I'm Dutch. They didn't have them in Holland. You didn't have ice creams in Holland? No, not those. Not double-headed ones. <laughs> very, very British idea. Um, so how is the world treating pocket living? It's, uh, you guys have obviously been extremely active over the last few years. You, you've still been developing through the many lockdowns that we've had. And clearly the need for what you do in, in the market has, has probably never been greater, right? That's always one of the advantages of, of running Pocket. Uh, there, there are many disadvantages in that it's still a lot of hard work and grind and the politics can be extraordinarily obtuse. But it's very nice to create a product for which there is always endless demand. And it makes people very, very happy. And our research recently with the LSE demonstrated that people still want to buy rather than renting. We can come back to that if you want. Uh, that they're fed up living with their parents and sharing, particularly during a pandemic, naturally. And that the circumstances in which they're moving into these homes are bewildering in terms of what they're coming out of, in terms of small flats mm, mm. and spaces. So that's a very positive thing about the business. Uh, I mean, it's uh, interested to Mark. Interested to to maybe dial back a little bit into some of your your own personal journey. So, so how you came from Holland over here? What have been some of the the milestones along the way with Pocket, and what have been some of the challenges that you've had to overcome over the years with the business? So, to so talk us through some of that, because I think we can come on to the you know the market stuff in a minute. Look, I, I lived here as a kid between the age of two and eight. And so the first language I ever learned was English. And when I was 18, I'd lived in three or four countries, been schooled in three or four countries. And then you have that kind of odd responsibility of having to make a decision as to where you belong. You know, I could have gone to university in France or Belgium or Holland or England or, or Germany. Uh, and I decided that uh, I thought the English were funnier and that I like the sense of humour, I like the culture, I'd come here. My sister decided to stay in Holland and she's very Dutch. I'm very British, apparently. So these things shape your attitude towards lots of aspects of living. And I think that the reason why I ended up setting up a housing company was because immigrants will need to shoot root and have their own roof above their head. Mm. It's an extraordinarily important aspect of any immigrant narrative that you want to control your own space and have that bit of certainty because in all other respects, you're in a sea of strangeness and cultural bewilderment. And so if you can have your own space, then you have a chance of succeeding as an immigrant much more. And I think that speaks to to me very much in terms of my journey. So that's one of the reasons, many reasons, why I set up the company. Mm. And how has it grown to where it is now? What, what... Well, because we've been in the right place at the right time with the right product. Uh, as somebody once said, it, it, you know, the greatest Canadian ice hockey player was not the guy who got to the puck first, but the guy who got to where the puck was going to be. Skating think, to where the puck is. The, yeah, uh, and I think that's what we did with Pocket. We asked ourselves a question 15 years ago about how the squeeze middle was going to be housed if it mm. couldn't get its foot on the first rung of the housing ladder and if it wasn't able to trade up, which is the way in which most people that 
got into housing traded up from something which wasn't necessarily fit for purpose, but yeah. it got them going. And if you couldn't get going with something, then where would you start? And to what extent and when was that going to become a political problem? Now, we're now building our thousands units, so it's obviously gone well for us. I think one of the reasons why it's gone well for us is not just because of the demand, but also the talent of people that we've been able to attract to the business like Nick. Hmm. So Nick Cuff, you've been with Pocket for a number of years now. You're also known to many people through your role in, in Wandsworth, Wandsworth Council, as chair of the planning committee, a role that you gave up some years back. How did you and Mark meet? Well, I was 28, I think, when I became chair of planning. And I um, I asked the, the officers... So half the, the average age of most people <laughs> yeah. on the committee, right? Yeah, I mean, a very extraordinary decision looking back at it. I mean, obviously, I, was, uh, I had an appetite for self-punishment. And um, I think I asked the officers. So you must have been a Tory, not or a Lib Dem, right? Uh, yes, it was obviously. Uh, I was a sort of centralist Tory, if you can believe it, at that time. Uh, and I had asked the officers to take me around the development landscape and give me a sense of what was going on in London. I, I sort of was also passionately of the view that my generation were people who were missing out on the opportunity of of housing, and so I was very much keen to see more development in in my borough but also across London you know there's just a sort of that period just after Ken Livingston has stepped down as mayor of London where you know London was changing as a, as a landscape as well I mean a lot more highly dense schemes are coming in and I always had a sense when I was younger that London has sort of missed out on that kind of density opportunity. Ken was actually quite good for the property industry I mean the, yeah yeah you know, the, the arguably well arguably not as lefty as, as some of the more recent folk but probably yeah. the best mayor of, of any any of the, the recent batch. Well, he, he broke the mould, didn't he? There was this sort of mould that London could only stay at the, like, in the 18th, 19th century. And uh, I think he asked the question, does that really need to be the case if you want to be a global city? But then in addition to that, we need to think about housing more generally. And I met Mark as a local councillor. I can't remember whether you had invited me or I invited myself, but I went around a pocket scheme and I literally didn't really know anything about Pocket at the time. And he was very sceptical to start with. I was very sceptical yeah. because I had this perception that smaller homes were somehow not appropriate. Maybe the officer told me to say that. And well, at that time... Planning policy still kind of says that, doesn't it? Uh, planning policy has changed and Pocket has changed with it. But the, at the time, it was still very new. And so I went around with some scepticism. And I think at one point, my scepticism was obviously on display because Mark called me out in the kitchen of the show flat and said, if you don't support this, that's fine, but you are essentially consigning your whole generation to the dustbin because they're not going to get a chance of housing or something like that. And that sort of was quite punchy, really, wasn't it, Mark? And I don't know, I mean, obviously later on, I realised that that's just how you operated. And it could have gone either way, I think. you know, I'm sure some politicians or some local officers would take that the wrong way, but I actually took it to heart. And so I went back to Wandsworth and I did encourage a discussion about Pocket at the time. I mean, it was quite difficult because I was, you know, my late 20s and everyone else was a bit older and probably even more stayed than I perhaps had been in my attitudes to housing. So it was a bit of an uphill slog. And as planning chair, I couldn't really influence what housing forms could come forward. I could, if something came to my committee, that would be different. I would obviously have a different view at that point. But obviously, in terms of housing principles, that was something that sat elsewhere. So I tried to engineer a discussion and I don't think it got anywhere, did it? <laughs> it went nowhere. But 
Mark and I parted company, had a lot of respect for him. And then a few years later, we met up again, didn't we? Although you were ubiquitous on the speaker circuit at that time. (laughs) (laughs) So it was hard not to bump into you. And I think that we had a kind of, I'd left the kind of the, the chair of planning role at that point. And then we had a sort of serendipitous conversation about perhaps joining Pocket. And that was just at the foothills of the Boris Johnson mayoralty where we you had got the, the funding to kind of scale pocket. That's right. So we caught him just at the right moment. He was at, at Essential, doing a very good job there. They were sorry to see him go. No, absolutely. And, and yeah, no, we, we obviously, Nick and I worked together there. So that's, yeah, that was an interesting period. What did you have to do then to get that funding? And, and what has that funding done for the business? Look, the discounts that we achieved to market are created through density. The home is a little bit more compact than what the average developer would normally put down. They would normally go to 49 square metres. We put down 37 square metres as a one-bedroom flat. We don't build two- and three-bedroom flats if we can help it. We don't put in car parking. So we can really have a super high margin within the stack on those one-bedroom homes Mm. and then recycle that margin into a discount market, which is genuine and it's deep. And the work that we did with Joseph Roundtree and the LSE has evidenced that you can price something like four times the cohort into home ownership if you discount the average first time buyer flat by 20%. By the way, the economics of this haven't changed in the last 15 years. The average first time buyer flat today in London is £350,000. If you can render that same flat at 270, 280 as an average within the portfolio, you can price something like 45% of young economically active households into home ownership. What do you need to do to be able to get the public fund? So the public funding, the GLA's funding is very helpful. But what's it's, that for? But, I mean, but, does, that, does that undermine the commercial viability of the business if it requires public funding? Well, it's very helpful and it makes a difference without any doubt and we wouldn't like to live without it. But should it not be going to a housing association, some would say? I'll get back to you on that in just a second. I'll answer your first question first because it's such a good question. (laughs) The reason why it's helpful is because the one bit that nobody ever talks about in terms of your cost base, and when people talk about subsidising land, uh, there is some talk about uh, obviously putting grant into buildings, there's some talk about planning, for, but nobody ever talks about cost of finance. So if you have a cost of finance that is zero, then that recycles through in a lower overall cost base. It makes a difference in terms of our margin of about... 1% to 2%. So it's not transformative. We wouldn't like to live without it. It's very, very helpful. And it comes in on the principle of first in, last out. As important to the funding advantage is just being able to work with local authorities on the basis that you have GLA backing. Just to clarify, you're talking about funding at a corporate level, not for the buyer. It's funding from the GLA at the corporate level and it's our cost of funds that they're financing rather than the housing itself because we've never wanted to have a subsidy inside the home per se. So we don't want them to give us grants that we then have to recycle back. Now, to your question, should they put it all into social housing instead? I would say two things. First of all, one of the reasons why this country's got itself into the housing conundrum that it's got itself into is that for the last 50 years, it's thought rigidly around two pools of housing. First of all, the unbridled Victorian capitalism of the open market, where people bore each other to tears over Sunday roast as to how much housing equity they've got. Mm. And on the other extreme, social housing for people who need social housing support. There is 
a never-ending amount of need for social housing, and I'm sure we should be doing more as a country. And I'm with Michael Gove, who wants to look deeper into what more we can do around social mm. housing. But if you only ever talk about open market housing and social housing, then the squeeze middle will be forgotten. And that is neither politically sensible, it's certainly not commercially sensible, because cities atrophy and they die off unless they can maintain young people. I'll just say one last thing on that subject. When we set up the company 15 years ago, we did a survey with head teachers and heads of universities and hospitals, and we asked them the simple question is, what was their number one problem in retaining talent? And they said the number one problem was housing-related. Your average chance of having a state secondary school teacher in the same job for more than two years was pretty much zero because they turned over every 18 months mm. and the number one reason mm. that they cited for leaving their jobs was housing. Same in the hospital sector, same in academia, and actually the same in many private sector businesses. So retaining that young pool of talent in London is crucially important. And do you think... Nick Cuff, that, that we're now at a pinch point there. I and mean, this was something I was discussing with Stephen Norris on the PropCast a few weeks ago. I mean, have a listen to it. You, you, you can hear the fun I had dropping a little thread about Brexit to him. You can kind of imagine how that went off. I mean, he was, it was quite a punchy, fun interview. And you know, as you expect from Norris, very, very full frontal in what he thought about things, which is good. But to Mark's point on the pressures uh, of housing people... Is this going to now start being a vote loser? Because I guess, Mark Lessing, I, I, I would say, actually, you know, you, you said that it's not politically sensible to be forgetting about these people, to forgetting about building homes. But actually, if you look at some of these by-elections and the response from the current government, they've ditched plans to build masses of homes because it isn't very popular with the mainstream blue yeah. blood Tories, right? Well, you say that, but if you look at the red wall seats, they're in what I would call the Goldilocks zone insofar as they have income to house price ratios of between four and seven. Now, you're borrowing four times to seven times your salary. Stuff is it's not which, quite as silly as it is in, in the South. It's not. And, and what was happening in those locations was a interplay between public subsidy, housing development was enabling people on medium salaries in those locations to buy or into the housing market and to essentially become homeowners and to become kind of quite stabilised in their life chances because there's obviously a lot of mental health advantages as well to owning. So I would say that the dividend of of that kind of interplay at that level was one of the reasons why the Conservatives won the last election and certainly undermined the Labour ring around those those northern seats yes there's a bit of brexit there but that very interesting housing opening up for lots of people who wouldn't have been able to buy so no housing it's is interesting a I mean, different views on it. i mean other people would say that helped buy doesn't really have that much of an impact because the homes are quite affordable in the first place um yes it, it depends on locations though doesn't it and those red wall locations with the four to six seven it was making a huge impact because it was pricing the medium salaries whereas in the sort of more of the kind of you know southeast locations where there's much higher multiples mm. It's less effective. On that point, though, to what degree has anything changed around the pressures that Mark describes on staffing schools, housing key workers? I mean, everything that is critical to making a city buzz, whether it's taxi drivers, midwives, mm. you know, primary school teachers. Does anyone actually know this is a problem or is this something that you guys are talking about in order to get more, more planning concerns? It's quite interesting because I, in, um, I had a, was in a roundtable with Cambridge City Council last Thursday 
And we were talking about the Aidan Brooks uh, Hospital, which is a massive employer of key workers in, in the city. And 45% of their staff are are living in the city of Cambridge in rental accommodation. And the majority are deeply dissatisfied with that as a private rental tenure. A lot of them are in HMOs, HMO Boomtown, Cambridge. So there's this recognition that, you know, and the hospital stepped up, to be fair. They've done some, they've shown some leadership. They put that research out there and they've shocked the council. There is increasing recognition of the lifeblood that key workers across the UK, not just London, play. But it's coming up against the rigidities of local government. And, you know, that, even and today... So what needs to happen for people in, in your locality, in your previous locality, to actually want to, to well, drive problems outside their thiefdoms? There's a natural tendency between the macroeconomic long-term desires and strategic requirements of national government and the localist tendencies of local government. And... You can't resolve that tension unless you try and come up with some very Stalinist measures, which I think was where the generic proposals fell down. They they were not thought through for the culture of this country. They may have worked in, in places like Germany, uh, zoning and algorithms that set housing targets in stone. That's not how we do things in this country. I don't know. But, but doesn't, but I mean, drawing on your own background in Holland, I mean, Holland, like a lot of Western, they, these guys use zoning, don't they? It's, it is a key part of, of planning. And, and some would argue that that too much of what we do and too much of what you guys as, as businesses spend and waste money on is dangling around back and forth with local planning committees when actually it could just be a precedent that says, look, look this... this I, um, I, I've given up on any notion that we could create a more prescriptive planning system in the United Kingdom, or certainly not in England. Of course, it works extremely well in places like Holland and Germany and Scandinavia. But, you know, they have culturally been living that way of doing stuff for a very long time. Housing is highly depoliticized. It's handed over to the civil service and you perform against very clear zoning and building regs targets. That's not how we do stuff in the but it UK. Would, it would make it less of a political problem, though. Well, it? It, it would make it less of a but you can't get it through Parliament. As we saw with the housing algorithm, the first thing that the Shower County did is to, to rebel against their own party. It's just not sensible to think in those terms. What it is sensible to do is to understand that when national government says we need so many million homes over the next 10 years, 360 plus local authorities fall over laughing because they say, oh, not over my dead body. So what you need is you need a layer of government intermediating between the requirements of national government and the nimbious tendencies of local government. And that, I think, is what Gove has got his head around. Now, whether you want to call them governors or, or, or mayors or super regions or metro it regions. Smells like RDAs. Or RDAs. There has back to what Prescott had. Yeah. Yeah, well, the RDAs, though, didn't have any elected veneer. Regional development They agencies. were all, well, they gave up on that, didn't they, because of the, um, was it the North East Assembly? Yes. Whereas I think what Mark's talking about is, and the other problem with the RDAs is was they were artificial in their geography, whereas what I think Mark is referring to is a, a more natural human geography around more city-type frameworks. So a bit which, like the discussions around the arc. 
I think what GMAC has done, I think what Andrew Burnham has pulled off with his colleagues in the Manchester area is very interesting and needs to be studied. I, you know, I think these new mayoral authorities, the West Midlands Authority and others, have real resonance. And, you know, there's some very good leaders in those jobs. They need to be given the funding in order to make a difference. And I think that is where national government sometimes has a problem because they look at powerful regional politicians and they can be seen to be, in their view, troublemakers. And I won't name any examples necessarily, but one can imagine which of the powerful regional brokers national government might have some difficulty with. But but it is what a sensible democracy... Well, they, they ought to be the next PM, then, whoever it's Andy Street, Burnham, Sadiq, everyone's got their eye on that. Yeah, I th- it, is, it is what a sensible democracy has. And we, we don't have that level of, if you want, the balancing act. And as a result... Housing gets politicised, and it depends on the performance on the night at planning whether you get the thing or not. By the way, there's another problem that the government has. The generic plans really majored on three ideas, zoning, the housing algorithm, and localism. Now, they've pulled away from zoning and the housing algorithm, but they haven't pulled away from localism. So you're now getting the planning inspectorate making decisions which are entirely without reason based upon localism. Uh, The planning inspectorate is not there to protect localism. The planning inspector is there to hold a balance between national, regional and local policy. And in the old days, when I started this business, on the whole, national and regional policy would trump local policy. If you have a planning inspectorate that is doggedly trying to protect localism, then there's almost no point in having a planning inspectorate. So the government doesn't need to actually be really, really clear about where it wants this balance between the national and the local to sit. And they've got it badly wrong at the moment. And in terms... Nick, coming back to to what we're building and what regulation prescribes we can or can't build, we've gone back and forth over this debate on micro homes for years, and and Pocket seems to have landed in it, you know, in a marketplace almost of one. There's not many other people doing what you do. Well, we don't do micro homes. That's why. Well, we sm- do compact homes, smaller homes. Well, it, well, it's just it's just a different word. No, it's not. Well, so so, so let's let's well, try and what's the what's the Nick will explain. So the taxonomy of it. <laughs> okay, so so you know, a micro home is a home which is outside the space standards. So a home which is generally derived from the permitted development rules. So okay, which so this are is fetid. planning lingo now. Yeah. Well, no, I think it's important because um, it has undersized furniture. It's yeah. it's really small. Whereas we're in the space standards, we're at the one bed one person typology. And those compact homes. So microhomes for us is not really a relevant thing because we're going through the whole planning process and and building from the ground up. So so that's why we would describe the difference in microhomes. Okay, genuinely. Right. So look, I think, I think we're also ad- advocates of, of space standards. By the way, we think space standards are a very important way of regulating a market. But I, I think the question that, that always comes back around on this particular part of the debate is whether people should have the right to be living in large properties. And if they're going to pay hundreds of thousands of pounds for a, a home that they own, should they have a right to enjoy more than simply 39, 40 metres of space? Well, the market has a choice and um, there's plenty of choice out there, but there's less choice when it becomes about very uh, central locations. And so you have to make a balance between what are finite sites and locations which are highly demanded in mm. terms of location versus moving out. Uh, into a more suburban location. But isn't that then why having a, having a good rental market makes sense? Because then yeah. you, you have that choice. If you want well, to live in a central location yeah. near the theatre, near the tube, you right. rent unless you can afford to pay 
well, sky high prices, or you, or you want, live a bit further out. You want, you want a mixed tenure. You want a mixed tenure approach. You want a range of different housing options from starter kind of housing like like what we do for home ownership and also for rent. You want more purpose-built elderly accommodation too, which doesn't get much of looking in the system at the moment. And then, of course, you want the whole range in the middle and indeed other forms of affordable housing. So you want a mixed economy because everyone has different needs. And of course, you know, we wouldn't dream of trying to do our developments in chimney pot land because that's not where our our buyers are interested in living. They want is that to live a technical in. planning term as well. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a technical planning term, but there and normal's come micro homes in chimney town. Um, so look, you know, we we wouldn't we know yeah. our market extremely well. But, we but, know our buyers want a foothold on the ladder. They want to live in really cool, interesting, connected locations. Yeah, absolutely. And they want to own. One question that I guess people would want to ask you, Nick. You know, based on your time chairing the planning committee, what what are the sorts of things that developers planners architects involved with projects what can they do to better engage committees with these sorts of projects or is it just not worth their time it's absolutely worth their time i think it it's extremely challenging to catch the imagination and attention when there's such sometimes such bland architectural proposals that come forward and and not quite often in the past i think there has been a sort of a fairly low grade approach in terms of Let's build them high, stack them high, and, and not really give much thought Maybe. to Maybe. I mean, there's a bit, the, of, a, bit of a sweeping generalisation now. I mean, but yeah. the, let me give you one example. You mentioned later living. Let me tell you about one of the projects that, that we've been involved with for a few years, a later living project that, that Guild Living was doing in Dominic Robb's constituency down uh, in Surrey, Elmbridge Local Council. And the architecture of that scheme wasn't, as you say, piled high it was it was a you know pretty high quality scheme and in fairness the council planners they they supported it that the 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 officers gave it support the committee had no criticism of the architecture at all or the, the committee simply were looking for any excuse to deny consent for that project because they didn't want a senior living scheme in the middle of their town center even though this is being built on on a redundant retail site had nothing on it uh, they had decided that, that they were going to try and find any excuse they possibly could to deny the scheme consent. And, and this hilarity of, of, of the, the back and forth you could see on, on the Zoom chat of the meeting where they were clearly being told by their council, no, you can't refuse it on these grounds. You're going to get it. And, and, and sure enough, it, it duly did get thrown out. And through that whole melee, uh, we, we started a bit of a fight uh, with everyone. We, we wrote to Dominic Rab from Nigel Wilson, the boss of LNG. We, we, we phoned up Jeremy Vine and we got him talking about it on Radio 2. And the whole debate then became about the council's decision, which says, this scheme will make our town centre unviable. And, and what, what we did, I, we, we said, well, hang on. You're saying older people are going to make the town centre unviable. Well, hang on, that smells a little bit like a breach of the Equalities Act. So we um, phoned up CMS, got them to uh, agree to putting a, a, their name to a statement that said this, and this then entered a bit of a battle with everyone. And, of course, the inspector threw the thing out and just massively criticised the council for its approach. Well, that was a lucky day, because the inspector might not have. Why? Because I think inspectors, inspectors are under more and more pressure to look at the localist argument rather than anything hmm. higher up the food chain. I think that really is a problem. But look, you know, we build excellent buildings. They're very beautiful buildings on the whole. We've won more architectural prices per square metre than, than any developer I know. 
these homes are fit for purpose. They bring density into areas of London where greater density is is possible and, frankly, is necessary. The Centre for Cities did a very good piece of research the other day comparing the commuting times for young families into work from Marseille compared to Leeds. And it's about one and a half times longer for us to get to work because our transport infrastructure isn't up to standard and because our densities in the inner cities I mean, is that now yesterday's problem now? Well, given given post COVID working from home, do do we care about commutes anymore? Yeah, that, I think we. That, I think, that, we, I think I, lesser a problem. I, th- I, I well, uh, it was very interesting. I, th- I think the mood has shifted on this. I think I think there is a recognition that whilst people will be wanting, as a result of the experience of the pandemic, more flexible working patterns, they still want to have an HQ and a central workplace. And almost by definition, in larger cities, that will be in the centre of town because that Mm. will draw the largest group of people from all over the town into the workplace. So I don't see the need to commute lessening. I think what will happen, and that's a very good thing for transport, is that the demands on the transport system will be smoothened out and evened up more so people can actually choose to come in at a time when it's not as crowded on, on, on the tube system as, as, as it is. That will make well, sense. Well, it well, goes without saying if you're a midwife, a policeman or a teacher, you can't really work from home anyway. So, you know, we, I think the property world looks through its kind of slightly rose-tinted lens of, of surveyor land. Thinking, you're you're oh, very white-collar, Andy. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, my, my, you know, my job as a, as a land agent at Stuffy LLP, I can work from home three days a week. Yeah. But actually, if you're, you know, yeah, you're working some hospital 12 for, hours a day... For, I mean, like, 40% of our buyers are key workers. So mm. for them, you know, the whole idea of being in town is, so let, isn't let just me important ask you this. for lifestyle. So, I mean, you, know, I, I mean I, I, you guys clearly quite radical in how you look at some of these things, but... It's trying to solve the wrong problem. If, if the problem we're trying to solve, right, is how do we help key worker X, Y, or Z live in a central urban environment or live close to work so that they can do the job that, that we deem as being important? We're saying, right, you midwife, you policeman, you paramedic, you primary school teacher, you carer for my elderly parents, you guys are important. Society values you. We want you to be able to live closely. We want you to be able to, to afford food and, and education for your own kids. So we're going to create this kind of really complex way to subsidize your home and then label you. To, it, it seems very complicated. Couldn't we just do one of several things? Couldn't we either pay these people more money and enable them to live anywhere? Could we not maybe just simply say, if you're doing one of these jobs that we society deem as important, and we'd all agree that all those jobs are important, why don't we just say, hey, you, you won't pay any stamp duty or, or we'll reduce your income tax or your national insurance against a house purchase? Probably, that's probably a bit more complicated. But you see where I'm going. It, or, or, me, you could, or you could build more homes. Well, but, but that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Which is, for, for all the reasons you've spent the last 30 minutes well, telling me, that isn't going to work. There are some amendments that are quite simple that you could make to the planning process now, which would open up an enormous amount of homes to the country without public subsidy and would also create a renaissance for SME developers who, let's not forget, only 20 years ago were probably delivering 40% Mm. of the housing supply. So running a little bit out of time, Nick, so quickly tell us what those three pieces of amendment might be. Well, I mean, we did a piece of work with Litchfields last year, very fascinating, which looked at the system. Small sites can deliver a huge amount. Small brownfield sites are the forgotten cousins of the whole planning system. They are the potential linchpins of the process. 
but they've been completely forgotten about in any planning reform and we haven't got a proportionate approach to them. We treat them the same as very large sites. Large sites, the letter review showed, take about 15 years to be delivered. You know, we're talking 1,500 homes plus, but all the effort on the planning system goes into them. Create a different track for small sites in urban areas and you'll suddenly release so much opportunity into the system in quite modest places, but with so massive tracks. So I mean, you're against zoning, but you want so, to talk me through what this looks like then. Well, I think zoning probably doesn't work for the UK, but I think small sites with a threshold approach, which is similar to what we've got in London, actually, is an opportunity, I think, to get... So it'd be a presumption in favour of a consent if you meet yeah. a bunch of certain criteria. Yeah, keep it simple. Which is essentially what zoning suggests. Keep it simple. No, you keep in the local policy framework, but keep tenure and mix simple on small sites because remember that small sites have physical constraints. That means they can't be as prescriptive in their approach as larger sites. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, just bringing things to a close, Mark Lessing, what about public land? Because again, we, we talk about midwives, doctors, nurses, teachers. I mean, some of the biggest landholders in the country are the NHS trusts. Tons of land. Um, yeah, so I think I think the answer to the first home conundrum, and you haven't got a functional housing ladder unless you tackle that, is to bring all of these ideas to bear upon that market segment. So you were earlier, Andrew, suggesting that you know you might be able to resolve some of these problems through fiscal measures like stamp duty release uh, or income tax benefits for the first time buyer. Look, I think you reform help to buy. You say you keep help to buy for people whose first home help to buy votes it is as some would um, say. and you ensure that it is only up to a certain price point you then release public land for the delivery of first time homes you make sure that the nhs when they release land and sell land don't have to recycle that through the treasury but that they can actually then appoint their own development companies mm. or partners wouldn't it be to, better for them to, to build out that land with an income stream attached to it rather than selling it off would it not be better for them to to build homes that nurses or phd students could rent and that creates an income stream for the nhs I, I, it's purposes. very interesting you've raised rental as a number of points in this discussion i do want to actually answer the sort of implied charge there if you're underbuilding, if you're under delivering housing in mm. the country then whether your attitude is rental or for sale makes no difference both will be overpriced because there isn't enough supply of housing. So I think it's, for some people, rental, great, fantastic. They haven't made a decision that they want to stay in a place. Uh, they're more transient. But uh, to your earlier point, that rental might be a way of getting people into uh, closer central locations. Rental, on the whole, is more expensive than buying your own home in this country. The problem uh, in this country is getting but, but people... But not, not if it's social rent. But social rent is for a, a very prescribed group of people. Yeah, but if we're talking about key worker, if we're talking about midwives, school teachers, carers... And their then... problem is that they're not eligible for social housing, as you well know, if you know your rules. So the, the problem in this country But they is... should be, that's my point. <sighs> my, my point is, if, if we've got a problem that says not enough midwives, not enough carers, and one of the problems is they can't afford to live... No, we, should, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be running a housing economy based upon two extremes. We should mm. be running a housing economy based upon the fact that there are people in the middle who need middle market solutions. Now, the interesting thing is, one of the reasons why Scandinavian countries have a middle market solution is because everything they do policy-wise starts from the point of view of the middle. 
They do not start at the extremes that we do in this country. They start from the point of view that their middle income, uh, middle market, middle everything populations need housing solutions. And we don't create those in the UK. So you know, until we walk away from this cultural you know, view that uh, we're there to maintain an open market on the one hand for people who you know, presumably want to get richer and richer and a safety net market for people in social housing, we're not going to solve this problem. Interesting place to end. Nick Cuff, Mark Flessing, thank you so much for taking time. Fantastic debate. Really good to see you both. Some amazing projects coming up from Pocket Living. Uh, we will absolutely share some of the uh, research that Mark and Nick had mentioned uh, in the piece alongside this. Please keep checking propertyweek.com for info around the forthcoming Resi conference. Uh, and uh, anyone that wants to subscribe, please head to Spotify, Apple, search Propcast and leave any comments you want to below the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon. I've been Andrew Teacher at Blackstock. <laughs>